Well, hi there, everybody. Uh, my name is James. I was the obnoxious loud guy who was going crazy in the corner earlier during announcement time. Um, yeah, I'm the college pastor here, and I uh, just want to uh, take a moment to notice that we have our students sitting on this side, to your right, to my left. That's the young people section, all right? So don't be upset, okay? It's 22 and under, all right? We'll check ID next time you come. I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, can I uh, ask you, to, it's like a self-promo, but can I ask you to give our students a round of encouragement? They're, um, honestly, we, man, we've had some great collegians here at Living Hope, and many of them uh, have graduated through a season of COVID, which is when I came. So, you know, a little hard for me, but it's okay. Uh, but I'm just excited what God is doing in our college ministry, uh, not just at college ministry, but with our prime single adults group. Uh, as well as uh, just all of the different age groups uh, in our church. As a matter of fact, a couple Sundays ago, we had Vacation Bible School, VBS. And thank you so much for those who volunteered and gave and served. Um, we, thanks to your help and, of course, thanks to God's mercy, we've had 32 little ones commit their lives to Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, 32. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know. And that's why we do this uh, for the little ones. And um, yeah, I just think uh, this was my first in-person VBS at Living Hope, and I just thought it was so awesome. And the work is continuing. Uh, as you heard last week through Pastor Steve, that you and I, as his church, we have the responsibility and the call to serve them as church family, to continue the works of growing spiritual life in the little ones. And not just the little ones, but in our youth ministry and just really every corner of our church. Uh, but what I'm trying to say as I say that the work is continuing, it's also that I'm actually having to return some stuff for VVS. Anyone doing that here? I don't know. Returning stuff is like not my favorite. So uh, I don't know if Miss Julie's here. She's our VVS director. I don't want to get in trouble by her. Oh, okay. All right. You know, <laughs> I guess I'm safe. I don't know. Um, I live in Cerritos and I had to return some stuff to Lakeshore, which, you know, you probably know if you're a teacher. Uh, the closest Lakeshore store is in Carson. And so it's about a 20-minute drive. Um, and I'm driving there, and, of course, there's traffic on the 91. There's always traffic on the 91. There's always traffic everywhere, actually. Uh, do you guys feel that? Like, is traffic getting worse, or is it just me? I, I don't know. I feel like it's just getting worse. Um, so I'm driving, and there's a little traffic, so I'm a little annoyed, you know, like, ugh, whatever. Like, this is going to delay me, like, 10 minutes and whatnot. And then I get there, and I bring the box out of all the things that I want to return, and then I go into the store, and the clerk is, like, being very nice. But I could tell that it's, like, she doesn't really know, like, maybe she was new. And so I ask for a return, and she pulls out this big old manual, and she starts to look things up. And I'm like, dude, are you serious? It's 2021. Like, you don't have, like, a computer for that, you know? And she's, like, looking, and I'm just like, okay, you know, I'm a Christian, trying to be faithful, patient. And then I start noticing that there's construction outside. There's new asphalt getting done in the parking lot. And if you've ever been near that kind of construction, it smells, right? It smells toxic. It's a little dizzying. So I'm like, great. This is like such an unpleasant experience to Lakeshore, you know. I know, first world problems. <laughs> and then the, the nice clerk lady, you were really nice, by the way, if you're watching this, okay. Uh, she was like, would you like to join Lakeshore membership? And I'm like... Yeah, 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 whatever, please, like, just hurry up and process my return. I didn't want to say no, but then I was scared that if I had said no, she was going to pull out another manual, you know, <laughs> like, and I was like, please, just, just process it for me right now. And then I go home, and of course, on my way home, there's traffic, 
right? And I'm like, great. This is like the worst day ever of my life. Um, I'm a big complainer, as you could tell, all right? And I don't know if some of you are like me, uh, but I'm going to guess that uh, many of us who live in the United States, uh, that we have this mentality, uh, the American way of life, if you will, that it's the voice in your hearts that say that you deserve things. It's something that tells us that you have choices and that you, you have this innate right. You deserve these things. You are the one who is doing the choosing. You are entitled to things. Have you heard that voice before in your mind? I would label this kind of mindset in one word, and that word would be ownership. Ownership. Isn't it true that the American dream is closely tied to home ownership? That we think growing up in the United States and living here where everything is provided for and we have liberty and freedom and justice, pursuit of happiness, human rights, all of these things are amazing and wonderful itself, of course. But what it does, I have realized, is that it puts us in a mindset where we start to believe that we are the owners of all things that are within our lives. That we're the owners and that we do the choosing. Now, again, I'm not knocking down on you owning homes or you owning your cars or you owning things or whatnot. But what I am trying to say is this. It's that when we read the book of Deuteronomy, because that's the series that we've been on, right? There's a lot of warnings against idolatry. And I started to think the past couple weeks as I was preparing for this message, well, how does our American way of life, how does our ownership mindset impact the way that we understand what idolatry is and what it really looks like to serve the living God. Does that make sense? So that's the question that I hope to uh, expound upon uh, today. With that in mind, if you would please open up to the book of Deuteronomy. Scripture today is book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, and I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. This is the word of God. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram, which is a symbol for fertility god, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are actually the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. 
from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And all God's people said, amen. Please join me in prayer. So Lord, we come to you and I ask that you would receive our worship. Lord, let our hearts be attentive and in tune to your spirit's voice. God, speak to us the words of life that we need from you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is the fourth message that we are giving out of the series Choose Life or the book of Deuteronomy. So I thought it was appropriate for me to briefly give you a recap of what this book has been like so far. Chapters 1 through 3 is a story of the conquest of the east of Jordan, not technically promised land because the promised land is the west of Jordan. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 give us the primary law that includes the Ten Commandments that many of you, I would guess, know about. And it can be summarized in Hebrew word Shema. And that's what Pastor Steve taught us last week out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And if I were to summarize the entire book of Deuteronomy, that verse would be it. That Lord your God is one. And then scholars differ in terms of structuring and outlaying of Deuteronomy chapters 7 all the way through 11, even though 12 through 26 is universally agreed upon. That's the secondary law. That's the, the smaller laws like oh, wash your hands before you eat whatever and you know, do this and don't do that. Those kind of the ceremonial laws of Israel is from chapters 12 and beyond. Now, when I say that scholars differ when it comes to the structure of Deuteronomy chapters 7 through 11, largely speaking, there are two schools of thoughts. One school says that 7 through 11, they all belong together because they all talk about what to do when you are in the promised land, which is west of the Jordan River. Other scholars, for various reasons, would say every single chapter actually belongs as its own section. So those are the two streams. Now, in my professional opinion, all right, because after all, I am a professional too. Uh, I think it's actually more appropriate to say that the categorization of Deuteronomy 7 through 11 is somewhere in the middle of those two, somewhere in the middle. And I would say, in fact, what I see is a chiastic structure of the book of Deuteronomy. Chiastic structure is just a fancy term that biblical scholars say when they notice a repeating theme that points towards another particular theme for emphasis. Does that make sense? That the way that biblical writers wrote these inspired words is not just haphazardly, but in a way where it's patternized. And that that pattern at times puts our focus on something else. And I think this would make more sense once I share the slide that I brought for everybody. So I brought a little slide right here. This is the chiastic structure of Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8. And, and again, I keep saying chiastic, and I don't, you know, that's like a funny word that we don't ever use. So I just call this the hamburger. You, you see it? I, I picked like the ugliest colors too. I don't know why. But, but um, you know, it's like the bun. You know what I'm saying? Like 
Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, it's the buns, right? They're like toasted. I don't know. Just, just imagine that. All right, I know it's almost lunchtime, okay? Toasted buns right here, Deuteronomy 6 and 8, they're about loving God. Love God and remember to love God. They did bookends. And then in the middle of it, there's a repeating pattern. The pattern is A, B, C, B, C, B, C, A. You see that? Of course, you see that there's not a C in the middle, right? That's, that's where we're going to get to, okay? But it's like your onions, your mushrooms, your tomato, I don't know, whatever you guys like in your burgers, okay? It's like a three-by-three, three, if you will, like meat, cheese, meat, cheese, meat, cheese, right? Anybody like in and out here? Oh, okay, all right, yeah, all right, God bless you guys. Okay, <laughs> I love in and out um, Obviously, right, in this chiastic structure or the hamburger, the meat the important part, the emphasized part is the middle part where it says God chose you. And that happens to fall in Deuteronomy chapter verse 6. Thank you for showing the slides. And let me read verse 6 for you again. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The weight and the focus of this entire mini section of Deuteronomy is upon this verse. The concept of you and I being holy to the Lord. Now can I ask, what do you think about when I say words like holy or holiness? Holiness, uh, unsurprisingly, is a common concept in the Bible. For example, Hosea chapter 11 mentions God's holiness as his power to forgive power to forgive. In Isaiah 6, God is described as holy, meaning it's about his transcendent majesty. This is the famous scene where Isaiah encounters the Lord, and God is so holy that the angels can't even look at him. And they cover their eyes and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of all hosts. But for those of you who are attentive might have caught that actually the power to forgive and even transcendent majesty of the Lord is not actually the definition of his holiness. It's rather a property of his holiness. Does that make sense? It's the ensuing quality of God being holy rather than being the definition of holiness itself. Because the Hebrew word kadash or holy or holiness, it just simply means to be set apart. And I think a lot of you have heard this before. Holiness means that you and I are ceremonially set apart. Or it means that you belong to God for a specific purpose. And even though many of us know that, I think, when we really think about how holy life or holiness plays out in our daily living or practical lives, I'm going to guess that it's a bunch of to-dos and to-not-to-dos. Would you say that you're with me? I mean, how do we live a holy life? Well, isn't it to not have sex before marriage, not do drugs, and I don't know, not curse, and not steal, not lie? You see what I'm saying? That's kind of how our minds grasp holiness, is it not? It becomes this legalistic, maybe prudish in a way, type of pietism. Essentially, what happens in our minds is that holiness gets reduced into what you're doing, what you and I are doing or not doing about us. Us and our attitude and our action and our hearts. If holiness becomes about us. But when we read 
the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, okay? Because the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And then the people of the New Testament times, they read the Old Testament in Greek, those who are Greek-speaking anyway, just like how you and I are reading an English version of the Bible. And the Greek version, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible is historically and theologically significant. And it's called the Septuagint, Septuagint. When you read the Septuagint, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, the sentence itself is actually specifically listed as what is known as the emphatic, emphatic, all right? It's a literary device to once again make an emphasis of what is written in the content. Do you see what's going on here? It wasn't enough for Moses to actually deploy the chiastic, the hamburger structure to put an emphasis on the holiness verse in chapter 6. If something was so important here that there was an additional, a secondary, an extra emphasis that was put on in verse 6 in Greek language. And that's what the translators of Septuagint have noticed in this particular verse. And that emphasis written is about God's choosing. Holiness is emphasized not as qualities that you possess or I possess or things that you do or I don't do or our heart's attitude or mindset even, but simply that holiness, when we're talking about what's being holy, the foundational concept is that God has chosen you to be holy. It's not that you're holy because you don't do drugs. It's not that you're not holy because you're keeping yourself pure sexually. It's that you're holy because God chose you to be holy. That God is the one who's doing choosing, not you and me. In other words, the concept of holiness, the key verse of these three chapters, it boils down to God's ownership. That God is the one who owns. That God is the one who's doing the choosing. And his people are simply chosen by him. And that's the reason why Israelites are told to not serve gods repeatedly. Remember in that hamburger structure, it was, you know, don't serve, God, don't serve other gods, Egypt. Don't serve other gods. Don't serve other gods. And that's going to be repeated throughout the entire book of Deuteronomy. Repeated warnings against idolatry. And the reason being is that God is the owner. God is the one who's doing the choosing, not his people. This mindset of God's ownership, I think it's a little troubling for American Christians. To the American church, like ours, a little troubling. Because we are entitled. We are the owners of all things in our lives. We believe in principles of freedom and choices, individual rights, that we are entitled even small to big things of whatever it is that we may go through, we are the ones who are owners. We own homes. We own cars. We own properties. We own rights. We make choices, and that's what we're about. And that's all good and fine until when it comes to God's ownership. Because what happens, and I'm, I don't know if you caught this, but holiness itself becomes something about what you and I do. That we start thinking that even following God, even being like God, even being holy is about my choice and what I do and what I don't do. But no, 
The Bible is saying to us today that holiness is about God's choice of you. It's that God is the owner of you, not you, not me, and not us. I think one area of life that I see this plainly, if I can say it that way, uh, I'm going to be a little more explicit here. Everyone's over 18 here, I think, right, uh, is sex. And in particular, sex before marriage. Now, I don't know if you know this, for those of you who are you know, married or you know, those who are of certain age, actually, sex and sex before marriage is by far the number one question of our young people. That's what they want to know. Yeah. But unfortunately, church, we don't talk about that. So I'm going to talk about it today, Okay. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble, I think, but uh, <laughs> pray for me, pray for me, okay? Here's my little, little spiel about Christian sexual ethics. Because the Bible actually is rich in sexual ethics. It's rich. And we don't do justice for that. Um, I remember uh, in seminary, actually, I, I read this one book. Uh, and made an, a lot of impact on me. I can recommend it. It's written by uh, a professor named Caroline J. Simon, and the title is called Bringing Sex into Focus. It's a philosophy book, um, and it breaks down seven ways that people think about sex, right? Seven reasons why people seek sexual relationships, okay? So, like, for example, uh, procreation, right? People have sex to make babies. That makes sense, right? Uh, pleasure. People have sex to have pleasure, Okay? Uh, plain sex, as she calls it. People do it just to do it. There's no other reason. Power, influence, self-esteem. You know, these are kinds of things. Of course, love. That's the great lie of our culture today, right? Love. Um, sorry, I think I, I saw a little one. Well, I apologize for that. <laughs> I feel super bad. <laughs> I... <laughs> I cannot, I cannot see who's sitting here. So if there's a parent among you and this is an uncomfortable topic for your family, please, yeah, please step away because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to get your family business all messed up, okay? I respect, you know, uh, your parenting and all of that. But this is, this is what I feel convicted by speaking today. So, yeah, sorry, I should have warned. I just can't see you because it's, it's dark in front of me, okay? <laughs> right. Uh, oh, man, I'm going to get in real trouble now. All right, but but I'm going to finish, okay? I'm going to finish, all right? I'm going to finish what I prepared, okay? All right, so here we go. Um, In Simon's book, out of the seven things, six things are about we and our choices. It's about us, right? It's that I own my body, and therefore I can do whatever I want. I love him, therefore I'm going to have sex with him. What's wrong with that? In fact, if I love him, shouldn't I? Shouldn't we connect physically? That's a great lie that our culture tells us, is it not? And by the way, if you have subscribing to that, that is a lie. I do want to tell you. The one category that Simon argues for that is biblical is called covenant. It's based on God's promises, right? When we think about the institution of marriage, right, did you realize that marriage is the only relational institution that God has made for humanity that he compares to his own son's relationship to his people. 
Even though commands like honor your father and mother, right? First commandment with the promise. Very important nonetheless. But my opinion is that it doesn't compare to the relationship between husband and wife. Because the Bible only compares marriage, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved her. It's my wife's favorite verse. <laughs> Seriously, though. <laughs> no, really, though. <laughs> the reason why God doesn't want to give you up physically, sexually. It's not because God is some sort of prude, Confucian, disciplinarian who's waiting in heaven to strike you down at a slight sign of sinfulness. It's not that God demands these things from you because he's power tripping. It's actually because you are so precious to God that he will refuse to give you, give you up to anyone and anything else. And it's only, only when you make a pledge in front of the Lord to say, I'm going to love him and I'm going to love her like how Christ loves his people, that's when your father says, fine, I will accept that. It's not a sign of restriction or anger or bitterness or no fun. It's actually a sign of love because God owns you. Bible says that Holy Spirit dwells in your body, that your body is a temple of his spirit. Guess what people in the Bible calls the dwelling place of God's spirit? Holy. This is a holy place. Do you see the connection here? For you are people holy to the Lord God. The Spirit of God came and stayed in your heart. And God called you holy. And he said, you are mine. I will not give you up to anyone and anything else. That's the reason why the Bible tells us to not have sex before marriage. It's only within the institute of marriage. And now, the second question. Well, what if I already did? What are you going to do about that, Pastor? Well, what if I already sleep with my significant other and we're not married? <sighs> Take a look at the rest of verse 6 with me. It says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. When we say, as American people, thinking about ownership, I think often what happens is that we think that we're some sort of like junkyard property that we can get pushed around and, and, and thrown away whenever that's necessary. But that's not what being owned by God means. It says that you are segula, king's possession. That's what it literally means. And it's not that this is an authoritarian king. It's that you are actually a royalty. Check out the logic flow here. Holiness doesn't depend on you, right? It's not about your doing or you're not doing. It's when God chooses you to ascribe that holiness, right? It's the same thing of your worth. 
It's not that you're worthy because you didn't have sex before marriage. It's not that you're not worthy because you continue to slip away in the relationship that you may have right now. It's actually that regardless of those things, God has chosen you to be a dwelling place of his spirit anyway. And therefore you are holy. Therefore you are treasure. So let's break out of this logic and a lie that says that we need to do this and that for us to be acceptable by God because you are thinking that you are the owner of your life. And guess what? It's actually God who is the owner of your life. So many of us are living in disgruntled obedience, right? Asking how far I can get. Have you guys asked that before, especially for our young people? Oh, how far can I get with him or her? I think the right question perhaps and the healthier question is how close can I get to God instead of how far can I get with him? Or we live with this double life, right? Ashamed or angry or prideful thinking it's okay to do these things. Church, I want to tell you today that it's not you who choose to be holy. It's not you who choose to be worthy, but it's actually God who owns you, that he is your king. And because he has chosen you, you are holy and you are treasured. Let's pray together. Would you um, spend a moment reflecting with me? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I talked about sex, but perhaps there are other areas in your life where you've been thinking that this is yours. Uh, and, and some of those things are rightfully yours because I think you work hard and you make good choices. But what if God were to show up to your life one day and say, you are mine? How would that change what you're about? Are there areas in your heart that perhaps you need to repent and confess to him and let him know that he is the owner and not us? Let's pray together, church. to you that you are our king. 
you're the one who do the choosing, not us. But the way that our lives are set up so often, it tricks us into thinking that we're the ones who are doing the choosing, that we're the ones who are owners of all things in our lives and even ourselves. God, we see today that according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6, that it is you who do the choosing. And because of your choosing, God, we are called holy and treasured. And we know deep down inside that our lives and our minds are not like that. We're not holy. We're not treasurable. But God, because you love us, Because you are so great that you have chosen us to be your people and we thank you Jesus and I pray that if there is any one of us here any son and daughter struggling with sexual immorality greed other things other sinful things of the heart And thinking that we have to somehow fix that before coming to you, Lord, help us to repent because we're not the owners, but you are. It is when you choose us to be holy that we can be. So I pray that you would make us holy today, that you would bring healing and restoration upon all of the families here at Living Hope, that you would protect our children, that you would allow them, God, to know you and to love you and to be people who fully submit to you for you are their king and they are your treasured possession. God, we bless you today. Use us for your kingdom glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.